don't know about you, but I've been having a lot of trouble keeping my different worlds from colliding these days. Or maybe the better word is converging, like peas and mashed potatoes on a dinner plate. In the middle of an investor presentation yesterday, our 12-year-old son slides into the background like Kramer and Seinfeld saying he's dehydrated. Can I please get him some water? Apparently, Zoom school does not include instructions on how to operate a faucet. We tend to have more live video streams going than rooms in our house, so privacy is not so easy to come by. But I guess that's the new normal, not just for me, but for pretty much everyone. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is a special pandemic edition of The Next Big Idea. It's the seventh and final episode of a series we're calling Rethinking Big Ideas. We're getting in touch with last season's guests and other friends of the show and asking them to help us understand the moment we're in now. Today, we're reaching out to Adam Grant, the renowned organizational psychologist. He's known for being the youngest tenured and for many years, the highest rated professor at Wharton School of Business. He's also the author of the best-selling books, Give and Take, The Originals, and Option B, which he wrote with Sheryl Sandberg. It's less widely known that he was an all-American springboard diver in high school, a professional magician in college, and that he's made a hobby of collecting astronauts. But I'd like to think the accomplishment he's most proud of is being one of the four founding curators of the Next Big Idea Club. I love talking to Adam. I do it for fun. But I guess this conversation counts as work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Adam Grant, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks, Rufus. Always good to be here. First off, I want to take this opportunity, Adam, to thank you on behalf of the broader Next Big Idea community for the instrumental role you have played in the existence of this experience. As you know, you and I have had conversations over the years, and uh, you've been an incredible collaborator, uh, a sounding board, a partner in your role as a curator of the Next Big Idea Club since day one, in fact, before day one. And I just want you to know I'm really grateful, and I think a lot of people are. Well, thank you. I'm I'm grateful to be part of it, and I've had a blast working with you and watching this community grow. Well, um, Adam, so tell me, how is the Grant family quarantine going? How are you guys holding up? Oh, I think all things considered, we're, we're doing well. I, there are moments when having three kids in online school can be a bit of a juggling act, and it's given whole new meaning to the myth of work-life balance. <laughs> but as, you know, as someone who's done most of my work from home for almost two decades, uh, it hasn't changed as much as it has probably for many people. As another person with three kids at home in video school, I can say the only thing more challenging than that is three kids at home who are not in video school, <laughs> which, <laughs> which occurs every day in the afternoon. But I think we're among the lucky ones, right? Because I, I mean, I think it's much more challenging in this moment to not be surrounded by family. And I, I certainly feel grateful to have that. Same. Well, this is the seventh and last episode in our mini series about this COVID-19 moment. This is the grand finale or maybe, actually, I, I might think of it as a dessert course. The theme of this special bonus series has been what we can do with this moment. It's obviously a harrowing time for so many people. And for those of us lucky enough to be healthy with the roof over our heads, 
you know, after we've done what we can to help others. The next question before us is how can we apply ourselves to come out of this experience stronger, happier, wiser, more productive, maybe more balanced, more connected to each other, or at least maybe better gardeners. In, in my case, um, more bearded. I'm, I'm clearly <laughs> making progress when it comes to facial hair. You, Adam, are an organizational psychologist. Some would say the organizational psychologist. Your stated mission is to study how to make work not suck. A noble mission indeed. Now that we're all working in the confines of our homes in quarantine, do you think work is sucking more? Is it sucking less? What is your assessment of the state of work suckage right now? <laughs> I would have said suckitude. So we're, we're, coining, <laughs> we're coining multiple unnecessary words for the English language. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting question, Rufus. You know, my anecdotal read of the situation is it's sucking more for most people. And I think that's, that's probably attributable to three things. One is the, the sense of isolation and loneliness mm -hmm. that comes out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, two is the stretching of the workday and the blurring of the work-life boundary, uh, where people are kind of, mm -hmm. kind of working all hours and just scrambling to, you know, to stay on track. Yep. And then I think the third is the lack of, of structure and tools and resources that normally facilitate getting work done. So I think those are all factors. I don't know... Yeah, I don't know how to weigh the fact that you know some people appreciate the flexibility, the family time, the not having to commute, but I'm guessing for most people that doesn't add up uh, to you know it's not enough to compensate or offset. And I think that actually the biggest problem, a lot of people are living with deep-seated fear that's related to job insecurity. As we've seen, the economy just fall apart. A lot of uh, a lot of companies have already gone under. You know they're. Unfortunately, millions of people who are out of work, and I think that that sense of job insecurity uh, is breeding a tremendous amount of anxiety for a lot of people. Yeah, but you know, had I said to you in January, Adam, we're going to get the entire world to work from home for six months, I would have been hard pressed to predict how people would respond. But I was really surprised by the results of this IBM survey released on Friday that found that. 54% of 25,000 adults who were surveyed said they would like to work primarily from home after this is over. 54%, you know, it's extraordinary. And 75% said they'd like the option to do it occasionally. Meanwhile, a good friend of mine said, that's 54% of people saying they would prefer not to work, <laughs> which, which uh, may be uh, uncharitable. But what do you think? I mean, should more of us be working remotely? Yes, I would give a strong yes to that. And mm. I say that largely because I've been trying to get leaders to allow their employees to work remotely some of the time for mm -hmm. over a decade. So back in 2007, there was a meta-analysis, a study of studies of telecommuting published by Gajendran and Harrison, where they, they gathered all the evidence they could find about what happens when people start to work partially away from the office. And they found that there was no cost to performance or satisfaction as long as people were in the office half a week. Interesting. And I looked at that and said, okay, as long as we get two and a half or three days with our colleagues face-to-face, mm -hmm. -face, there doesn't seem to be much of either a psychological downside or an effectiveness downside to being able to work on our own time. And then Nick Bloom at Stanford came along and ran mm -hmm. this great experiment yep. in a call center, which you know about, yep. showing that if you randomly assign people to work from home, 
on average, their productivity went up by about 13%. And over the next six months, they were half as likely to quit. We could start to ask, why is that? I'd have a few hypotheses. The first one is that people are able to customize their jobs in ways that work for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for some people, that's, you know, adjusting the timing of their work to say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm much more socially engaged in the evening mm-hmm. and I'm going to do some of my call center work during those hours. Sure. For other people, it's the sense of autonomy, just knowing that they get to make choices about how they structure their day that, you know, that was motivating for them. Um, there's a huge trust component of that, right? When your employer says, hey, you know what? I have faith that if you work whenever and wherever you want, you're going to do a good job. That elicits a lot of gratitude, and people often reciprocate that with commitment and loyalty. And yet, a lot of people still struggled. And in the data, roughly half of people said they wanted to come back to the office after the experiment was over. Right. That was the sort of surprising twist, right, in that Bloom study. Of course, this was conducted in China. I think they were employees of the largest travel agency in China. And apparently, a meaningful portion of them live with their parents. So that, so that, <laughs> yeah, might, have, that might have been a contributing there. that might have been a contributing factor. But clearly, we do enjoy having, and, and we all need to have interaction with each other in the same physical space. My own experience is at the Next Big Idea Club, we have kind of a hybrid model where we work roughly half the time remotely, and in the afternoons we get together in the office. And that balance for me and I think my colleagues works really well. The first thing I would say is I love that you you do a hybrid model, Rufus, because that's exactly what I'd like to see more companies go to. I've never felt like the natural solution to <laughs> to this problem is to say, okay, everyone should work remotely all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because it, we, we know that there are many things, especially if you're not working independently, that are harder when you're virtual. Sure, um, It's harder to build a sense of common mission. It's harder to create a culture. It's harder to get people on the same page. And so, you know, I think some FaceTime is valuable for a lot of people who are doing interdependent work. Uh, for whom, you know, communication and collaboration is really central to their jobs. And that, of course, is especially true in the very kind of work where it's easiest to go remote, which is knowledge and service work. So I don't want to get rid of offices or, you know, or any physical workspaces. But (laughs) it was like pulling teeth a year ago to get many leaders I respect who are CEOs of some of the most successful companies on earth to even run experiments like Remote Work Fridays. Hmm. And I think now it's going to become the norm in a lot of places. Yep. For me, it's been interesting in some ways because I only teach in the fall each year, and I only go to campus on teaching days. I see. And so what that means is I'm on campus one or two days a week in the fall, and then about once a month the rest of the year. My actual work life in that sense hasn't changed yet. We still don't know what's going to happen with online teaching come fall, but What's really changed is I haven't traveled. I haven't left my house in two months, actually. And that part of of being on the road to do speeches and go to conferences is kind of the thing that I've I've been missing. But otherwise, my day-to-day of doing my work is, is more or less the same as it was before. The hybrid model that I personally employ is kind of a combination of your counsel to work remotely a portion of the time, and what I learned from Dan Pink's when about the science of perfect timing, which is I like to protect my most productive and focused first three or four hours of the day, then shift into like often a business lunch and a series of meetings in the afternoon. But something I learned in your podcast, Work Life, 
is that Peter Drucker wrote about this in 1993 <laughs> in his book, The Ecological Vision. And here's what he wrote. He wrote, commuting to office work is obsolete. He wrote this 25 years ago. It's now infinitely easier, cheaper, and faster to do what the 19th century could not do, move information and with it office work to where the people are. He says this 25 years ago. He says, we have the telephone, two-way video, electronic mail, the fax machine, remember that? <laughs> the personal computer, the modem, right? But, but I mean, to me, it's a little bit of one of these cases like luggage and wheels, like putting wheels on luggage. We had wheels and we had luggage a long time ago, <laughs> you know? and yet it took a while to put them together. I'm surprised this has not been embraced sooner. Me too. I mean, I was shocked when leaders who I think are excellent decision makers, who are open to experimentation and learning new things and excited to do things that would improve the well-being of their employees, just they just started with a hard no and said, I can't do it. It's going to create too many problems for my organization. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a huge amount of it is status quo bias. Sure. That they were just comfortable with the way that they'd always done things, and they said it's not broken, so why should we try to fix it? And then as I started to talk to managers and, and executives about maybe even running the experiment, they started to worry about disparities that would emerge, where you know some people have jobs that are totally portable, but... Other jobs and other divisions of the company, people might be working with complex machinery or heavy equipment, can't take that home so easily. And now all of a sudden we have status disparities and some people feel like they're getting left out. And Rufus, my reaction to that is, yeah, you know what? That might happen. But don't we want to build a learning organization here where as a leader, I could say, hey, you know what? I believe in changes that will make some people better off without making anyone else worse off. And so are you all willing to try this experiment where if remote work helps some people, you know, you'll give that a shot? I was so surprised that, that so many leaders said, we just don't want to open Pandora's box because then we might not be able to shut it again. To the extent that it's about status quo bias, we now are obviously creating a new status quo, right? That, that of course, we don't know how long this is going to last, but there are a lot of people all over the world becoming accustomed to working in a new way. We see that reflected in the results of the IBM poll. But, you know, I'm interested in the data showing that not just that people like it more, because I think a lot of people say, oh, of course people like it more. They're, you know, they're, they're hardly working or they're, you know, they're taking a lot of coffee breaks. But in the Bloom results, as you said, they're 13% more efficient, 9% more engaged, attrition's 50% lower. So there's a fair amount of evidence that it's meaningfully more effective. And I like this explanation, among possible explanations, I think you're absolutely right, autonomy strikes me as a huge part of it. But another variable that, that Jason Fried, CEO of Basecamp, pointed out, which to me resonates, is that it forces more asynchronous communication so that people can focus for hours at a time without interruption. They can do deep, focused work, which we all know can be really, really hard in the office. Do you think that's part of it? I do think that, in part because there's a roughly 40-year history of research on brainstorming, which shows something that a lot of people find surprising. So we get people together to brainstorm because we think great ideas come from people building on each other's perspectives. And also, we get more energy in the room when there's a group as opposed to a bunch of individuals working alone. And yet, over four decades of evidence has shown that if you were to take five people who are in a brainstorming meeting together— and instead put them in separate rooms to generate ideas alone, 
you will get more ideas and also higher quality ideas. There are three mechanisms behind that that, that have good data. The first one is, uh, is called production blocking, and it's the idea that we can't all talk at once. So some people don't end up voicing all their ideas. Often it's the introverts. It might be the people who are you know, lacking status or part of non-dominant groups. The second is ego threat. People are afraid of looking stupid, and so they hold back on their wildest ideas, which are the very ones you wanted to hear in the brainstorming discussion, right? And then third is conformity, that as soon as an idea either gets voiced by the hippo, the, the highest paid person's opinion, or just gains popularity, people jump on the bandwagon, and then you get too much convergent thinking, not enough divergent thinking. And you avoid all those processes when people work alone. You get everybody's independent thought and judgment. And then you can bring people together as a group and try to leverage the wisdom of crowds. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, I'm Michael Kovnat, host of the Next Big Idea Daily. The show is a masterclass in better living from some of the smartest writers around. Every morning, Monday through Friday, we'll serve up a quick 10-minute lesson on how to strengthen your relationships, supercharge your creativity, boost your productivity, and more. Follow The Next Big Idea daily wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned earlier, Adam, you have a podcast that goes deep on the nuts and bolts of how to do remote work better. And I encourage our listeners to listen to it right after this one. It's fascinating. Just search for Work Life with Adam Grant. While you're at it, subscribe. It's a consistently enlightening podcast. In the course of researching and preparing your podcast, Adam, what have you learned about how we can do it better as individuals? How can we be better at, at working remotely? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, enlightening is a high bar. I just hope to be thought-provoking and entertaining from time to time. So what have I learned about how we can do remote work better? Okay, so one thing is a mistake that all of us are making in our virtual conversations, which is we start with icebreakers. I went and read a bunch of evidence on team building and I learned that icebreakers can be helpful, but they're not as effective as doing two things. One is making sure everyone is clear about the mission or the goal. And that seems to be really critical for making people feel like they belong to one team and they have a purpose that matters. And so the next time, you know, you do this, well, how are you? Let's all give an update on our completely uneventful lives where nothing has changed in the past two months. <laughs> it might be more effective to say, okay, how are you thinking about our mission differently in light of what's gone on over the past two months? Um, you know, what, what feedback, what feedback have you gotten on our products or our services? How are you seeing, you know, customers engage with our technology different, right? That's, that's a conversation that might actually help reconnect people to the meaning of their work. And I might even go further there and say, regardless of whether your job was called essential or not, it's worth asking the question, if your job didn't exist or if our team didn't exist, 
who in the world would be worse off? Hmm. Those are the people who your job exists to serve, right? And your company exists to serve. And so I think just even going around the team and saying, okay, who's the person or who's the group of people that you're most focused on helping through your work is a really powerful way to add meaning to work that can sometimes seem a little bit aimless uh, and you know, sort of disconnected from, from impact. So I think that's a way of, of bringing people together around a shared purpose that really resonates with each person on the team. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Actually, this period of time, I'm sure for a lot of people, has been somewhat of a reckoning around like how important is what we do every day. Happily, I think for our team at the Next Big Idea Club, we're feeling kind of more purposeful than ever. But yeah, no, that's, that's certainly a, a critical question. And then I, I guess there's one other alternative to, to standard icebreakers that I like a lot. There's a really neat experiment that Lee Thompson did on brainstorming groups where before people started a brainstorming exercise, she wanted to see if she could solve this ego threat problem and try to build psychological safety in the room. And one of the ways she did it was she randomly assigned people in pairs to share an embarrassing story about something that happened to them. And it turned out that afterward, the brainstorming session was more creative because people essentially convinced themselves, you know what? I must trust these people because I just told them something a little bit uncomfortable about me. And so my favorite alternative to an icebreaker, which is really about creating shared understanding between people to say, let me know what your life is like right now and what's going on in your world so I can get a sense of where you're coming from as we communicate and collaborate, is to ask people, let's go around and do Zoom bloopers. Tell me your, your favorite embarrassing thing that's happened. And, you know, if there's nothing for you, you've definitely seen or heard someone else's Zoom blooper. And it's a chance for the team to enjoy a little bit of that shared vulnerability, but also then to, to realize, hey, this is a group of people that I can be a little bit more open with. What's so interesting about these observations about the importance of establishing company mission and team goals and making sure the roles are clear is that obviously these are things that companies want to be doing anyway, right? But I guess the need for this kind of clarity is even more pronounced when people are working remotely. But it strikes me that this is kind of reinforcing or should reinforce practices that businesses should be doing. Yeah, I think that's right. We've known for a long time that teams are like amplifiers. Some of the, the bad communication habits that we might have had in place when we were all face-to-face, -face, they hurt us a lot more now that we're not face-to-face. And I think that, yeah, this is, this is the time for every company to say, okay, we might not have been good at this before, and this is one way we can make sure a crisis doesn't go to waste. A really surprising observation I learned from your podcast is that people are better at reading emotional cues when they only have audio. And this apparently has been shown in studies both where people are face-to-face, -face, but they turn out the lights, and also in cases where people turn off the video in conference calls. Right. Isn't that interesting? So it seems like our newfound exuberance for Zoom video might be excessive. I was really surprised when I read this research because, you know, like like many psychologists, I was trained originally by researchers who, you know, were very impressed with the evidence on facial expressions and body language and, you know, the seeming universality of certain kinds of nonverbal cues. And we didn't have the same sophistication of research on audio signals. And what's really interesting to me about these experiments that Michael Krauss did is he does them where he compares you having just audio, just visual, and both. And in every case across five experiments, the audio only beats the visual only, but it also beats having all the cues. 
And so it's not just that the visual cues are less reliable than the audio cues. Adding them in seems to hurt. Pushing back a little bit on the, or, or maybe clarifying the problem with icebreakers, something that I found us doing in our next Big Idea Club meetings as a team is we've been opening with effectively a sanity check. Like, hey, how's everybody doing? How are you? How's your family? How's your hamster? What was your experience trying to buy groceries, right? I mean, there's this kind of a deeper connection on everybody's individual lives. And I think there's a fair amount of evidence, right, that psychological safety is created in groups through, like it's like the exercise you were referring to about embarrassing stories. Yeah, I think for for anybody who's struggling with the how are you question, an easy workaround seems to be just asking people if they have a highlight and or low light they want to share from the week or the day. As a psychologist, one of the things that I like about that approach is it anchors people in a much more concrete experience. How are you is actually a really tricky question to answer if it's not just a perfunctory, you know, I'm fine or I'm good, because it requires us to <laughs> mentally scroll through everything that's happened to us in the day or week that we're trying to evaluate and then come up with one summary emotion. And most of our lives are way too complex to do that. Well, I've got three things that are going well, and I have five things that are not so hot at the moment, and I don't know how to aggregate all that and explain it in a way that's succinct. Whereas, give me a highlight or a lowlight, now I can give you one little moment, one experience, and that will hopefully give you a taste of what's going on in my world. As we're talking about people's sanity right now, how do we stay sane in this moment? I know this is something you've given some thought to. And I was fascinated by the fact that you interviewed an astronaut for your podcast. I mean, we're all isolated, but not quite isolated to the degree of, a, of an astronaut uh, floating in space. What did you learn from that conversation? I've been uh, just riveted by astronauts since I was a kid. And I think I, I decided very early on that I was, I was too risk averse along with not having the right stuff. So I, I never really seriously considered it as a career path. But uh, from the moment that I, I had the opportunity, I've, I've sort of, I've collected astronauts as, as people to learn from because I think their experiences uh, are so rich from an organizational psychology perspective, you know, both with staying sane and also then collaborating in very high stress situations. And so, yeah, I, I called Scott Kelly, uh, who set the American record for doing the 340-day mission in space. And I think that the biggest thing I learned from Scott was it, this was his fourth time going to space. The previous longest was six months. He knew this one would be about a year, but they, they hadn't decided exactly how long it would be or, or when he would be flying back home. And he said he did something different to prepare this time than he'd done any of the other missions, which is... He did a, an act of, of time travel. I'm like, time travel? I'm sorry. I've, ever since I watched Quantum Leap as a kid, I've wanted to know how to do that. Like, give me my back to the future moment. Marty McFly, here I am. Then I, I, I realized what we were going to be talking about was mental time travel. He did this, this fast forward exercise where he said, okay, I'm going to imagine the day that I finish my mission and come back to Earth. And I thought, okay, what Scott's going to say is he's got a goal. He wants to you know, picture having accomplished that goal, and that'll make the days go faster uh, because he'll, you know, he'll, be able to, he'll be able to imagine the end point. And I was really surprised when Scott, who's a pretty, he's not exactly a touchy-feely guy, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> if you think of your stereotypical Navy test pilot turned astronaut, he's not somebody that I would expect to immediately go to emotion. But he did. 
And he said, what I started imagining was how I wanted to feel on the final day of my mission. And then I did the rewind exercise and said, what do I need to do day to day to be in that emotional space when I'm done? And I thought that was such a powerful exercise. And it's one I've actually started doing. You know, just like Scott's mission, we don't know when this crisis is going to end. We don't know when we're going to leave the house in a relatively normal way. But I can start to picture, okay, what frame of mind do I want to be in on that day? And then start mapping backward and say, okay, what do I need to do week by week to land myself there? What frame of mind do you want to be in on that day? How, how do you think about it? Well, I, I think there are two emotions that jump to mind for me. The first one is gratitude. I want to appreciate the simple act of being able to go to a restaurant and feel, feel grateful for having a job in ways that I never did before, right? So that's, I think that's the first one. And then the second is I want to, I want to be excited to be able to, to reconnect with people in a different way and <laughs> not see you know, travel or commuting occasionally as a chore, but rather as a, a privilege. I've been recently thinking about, well, how do, how do I get there? And I, I have a couple ideas, but I, I want to ask you the same question back first. So where, where do you want to be psychologically when this crisis is over? Well, you know, I think I would like to feel that, A, I did everything I could for my extended community, you know, for obviously friends and family and all, all the people we know in our communities that we could help and support. And B, that I took advantage of this moment to connect with my children. You know, my oldest child is 15 and having unfettered access to his parents and no access at all to his friends, though it's an imposition on him, it's sort of a unique opportunity for us. And I'm kind of ashamed to say that I think I will miss the quarantine a little bit in the sense that it's like time on an airplane because it's very easy to be highly focused. I relish airplane rides as opportunities to really do the kind of deep focus work that I, I feel that I need to do to advance things I care about. And so I'm treating this time as one of those times. So, so I hope in that moment, I feel like, wow, you know, you really did Rufus make some progress with connecting with family, supporting community and advancing projects you really care about. Do you think you'll miss the quarantine, Adam? There are definitely aspects of it that I'll miss. But I think one of the things I've been trying to do to, to maintain the sense of gratitude and hopefully carry it to the, the end of the pandemic is a lot of people are doing, you know, I know they're doing family dinner. Let's talk about something we're grateful for. And we've been doing that with our kids and, you know, and just taking the time to say, okay, we're grateful that the lights are on, that we have power, that this pandemic happened when, you know, when, when the internet is so functional. And I know a lot of people are doing gratitude journals to remind themselves of that. But what, what I found most helpful actually is gratitude letters. You know, the, the nice thing about feeling grateful is it makes you happy. The great thing about showing gratitude is it makes other people happy. And I've set a goal of writing to, to a few people every week uh, to let them know what I appreciate about them. And that's, that's been such a meaningful exercise. That's wonderful. And, and clearly, we are among the lucky ones in this moment. And if we and our families are, are healthy, we're, you know, that's a huge exercise in gratitude. You know, among the um, opportunities that exist right now, I'm reminded of what you wrote about in Originals about the value of hobbies, creative hobbies. And you pointed out that Darwin liked to hike, Galileo loved to sketch, Einstein loved to sail and play the violin. This would seem to be a, a great time to, uh, for us to lean into our hobbies. 
Yeah, I think it is. It's pretty interesting. There's some new research that's come out showing that having a, a hobby that's self-expressive in some way, whether that's you know painting or music or art or performing as a magician, uh, that that seems to predict higher creativity. But there's a little wrinkle when it comes to how having a hobby affects your job performance. It turns out it's better to have a hobby that's unrelated to your job. I don't know how much of that is because it's more energizing when, you know, when it allows you to do something totally different and fresh. But I think this is, yeah, this is certainly an ideal time for anyone who has the luxury to say, hey, there's a skill I've always wanted to learn. And I'm going to take a few weeks and, and spend an hour a day or even an hour a week trying to pick it up. And are you a hobbyist? Adam, I know you used to be into magic. (laughs) Long retired. I'll tell you what I did. I finally downloaded Words with Friends. And I've loved playing Scrabble since I was a kid. I've loved word games forever. And I (laughs) actually, since college, I would resist the temptation to download online Scrabble because I knew I would get sucked into it. And I figured, okay, you know, I'm going to have a lot of white space during this experience. Let me download this game and, and play with some friends. And that's been a ton of fun. I've told you that my guest today, Adam Grant, is a best-selling author, the highest-rated professor at Wharton, and one of the most interesting thinkers around. But for us at the Next Big Idea Club, Adam's most essential role is as one of our club's four amazing curators. Every few months, he and fellow curators Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink pick two new groundbreaking works of nonfiction to share with members of the club. Adam, I am really excited about the two selections for the next Big Idea Club spring season, which we are about to announce. We haven't announced them yet. Can you tell us anything about them? Well, I'm, I'm excited about them too. They're, they're both outstanding books. Uh, they both bring important new ideas and could not come at a better time. Uh, I would say one is about how we can fit into the world and the other is about how we can stand out in it. I love it. It's a great combo, one of my favorites. Yeah. Great. Thank you, sir. We'll be announcing the winning books later this week. And when you, dear listener, join the club, we'll send them to you along with videos and audio of the authors delivering their key insights in just minutes. So if you want to work smarter and live better with the help of people like Adam Grant, join us at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Do it now and we'll give you the first three months for free. Yup, free nextbigideaclub.com slash podcasts. Check it out. Let's turn to, if we could, the future of education. Our friend Dan Pink made the case that this epidemic is accelerating trends that are already underway. But one of those trends is clearly more and more people working remotely. Another, arguably, is the movement towards online education. I did a highly scientific survey at my dining table last night, (laughs) and a clear majority of my three boys in grade school and one in high school would support a hybrid of video classes and attending school. There are obviously pros and cons for teachers as well as for students. How do you think that education should change? I think the the first thing that should change is we need the chat function. (laughs) We we need, you know, as, as a teacher, when I pose questions to a class, Having even a taste of what people might say in response 
is such a powerful way to improve the quality of the dialogue. There are tons of barriers if you're shy or you're an introvert or you just don't feel like you have your, you know, your grip on the material yet. It's really hard to raise your hand and ask a question or assert a, a point of view. And I think the the chat function is a great equalizer. So I would love to see that incorporated into the classroom. Even when we're fully teaching face-to-face again, what I'd like to do is have at least a couple moments in each class where I ask a question, pause, and then put up on the screen the chance for people to submit their answers and then call on some people who I think will will really strengthen the dialogue and maybe challenge not only each other's thinking, but mine too. I guess the other thing is, There was a really interesting experiment at Georgia Tech done a few years ago where a professor decided to see if a bot could be an effective TA in a computer science class. Only he didn't tell the students that he was introducing a bot. And so, you know, you're you're taking a class, you have a lot of your sections taught online uh, by a TA, and I think there are eight or nine TAs, and one of them, you know, unbeknownst to you, is a bot. It it was a little bit of an experiment to test whether you could really substitute for a human, let alone a face-to-face interaction, for getting students to open up with questions and build a real relationship where they feel like they're learning from someone they look up to. And so interesting, what he found was that students, once they found out that the bot was a bot, uh, they weren't upset, but they were actually more willing to ask questions of the bot than the human. Because with the human, they were afraid of being judged, and they didn't want to look stupid. Whereas nobody cares if the bot thinks they don't know the answer. And as a result, they're comfortable telling the bot what they didn't know. And what that in turn did was that allowed the professor to realize, okay, on this you know, this one um, coding problem that I've posed, I thought everyone got it, but 42% of the class is asking basic questions that reveal that they don't understand the technique I've taught yet. And if we didn't have the bot, those questions wouldn't have gone to the TAs and I wouldn't have been able to teach it more clearly. So I guess that's my second thought is as long as we're online anyway, we should be running experiments around where do human teachers really add value? You know, I think it's a huge waste of an expert's time to be explaining something that you could easily learn from an adaptive AI and instead say, all right, let's allow the professors to really grapple with the interesting questions and the rich dialogue with students. So that's a second hope. Mm-hmm. It does strike me that we have a lot to learn from video games, arguably, right? One of my favorite charts is one in the book Flow by Mikhail McSentmihai that shows what flow state looks like. Over time, the challenge has to get more difficult. And so to stay in, in a state of flow, your challenge needs to be increasing over time. But if it increases too much, you become anxious. If it doesn't get challenging fast enough, you become bored. So in any given classroom, you have a portion of the kids are, are in flow state, a portion of the kids are anxious because they're not following, and a portion are bored. And what's <laughs> extraordinary about video games is they're able to calibrate the challenge exactly to the performance of an individual, which is one of the reasons they're so addictive. But then there's a the question of like how effective can video be for the purpose of teaching? And, and obviously video with increasingly sophisticated abilities to register feedback from students. Have you taught much, Adam, in, in a video environment? Not much, not yet. Uh, I've done a bunch of virtual keynotes and I've, I've led some lab meetings, but teaching is yet to come. One issue that, of course, is timely is you look at just the colossal costs of college, right? I mean, just the enormous burden of college debt that young people have. We clearly need more financially efficient solutions for higher level education. 
I'm sure you remember the argument that uh, Daniel Markovitz made in The Meritocracy Trap, which was a Next Big Idea Club finalist, that elite institutions like Ivy League universities where you teach should be educating many more undergraduates in return for their nonprofit status. I mean, their endowments have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and yet they educate the same number of, you know, five, 6,000 undergraduates. And so here's just a thought where, where I could imagine things potentially going, which would be to say, if there was a little more of a hybrid model, which we talked about on the work front, of, say, universities eventually over some period of time going partly virtual, partly in person, so you get the benefit of both, it could be possible to have more students and reduce the cost of tuition. Yeah, I think it's possible. I'm agnostic about the right way to solve this problem. I, I don't know that I would immediately jump on this bandwagon and say, yeah, we should be serving you know, orders of magnitude more st students than we currently do. I teach a class for undergraduates, which is capped at 70 students. And the reason for that is my primary method of teaching is experiential learning where students have to solve problems together. One day, they have to negotiate with an adversary. Another day, they have to make a group decision about who to hire in a, a difficult hiring uh, scenario. There's a challenge every week in my class where they have to apply the principles of organizational psychology. Then we discuss and debate. They find out what really happened in the real-life scenario that this, you know, this case or demonstration or simulation was based on. And then they get to go and, and figure out how to handle that kind of situation better in the future. And there are elements of that that are just not scalable, even to, you know, the, the 340 or so students who applied to take the class this year. My answer to that has not been, well, I should just then offer many, many sections of that class because then I would only teach and I would reach a very limited number of people compared to what I can do as an author and speaker and podcaster and you know put all these other hats on the table. Uh, and then there's also doing research, which is a big part of my job. So what I concluded instead was I'm much better off you know, writing books and articles and hosting a podcast. And that's how I share my knowledge outside of the ivory tower. You know, I think there, there's also, of course, the hybrid, though, of, of going to a model like Coursera to say, look, I could, I could imagine designing a version of my class that takes some of the experiential components online, allows people to learn in that format. And I think that that makes more sense than all of a sudden saying we should open up the university to, you know, 100 times more students than we currently have. No, I think that makes sense. And I, it also strikes me there are many different kinds of teaching and different kinds of learning, right? And there, I think there are probably certain kinds of learning that will be done very effectively through interactive experiences on your phone or, or tablet and other kinds of learning that happen best with a small group of people in a room. Yes, I think that's true. I hope that's true. Well, Adam, traditionally in this Next Big Idea miniseries, my last question is what makes you hopeful? But before you answer that question, I want to tell you what makes me hopeful. And that is one of the most uplifting pieces of research I've encountered in your work is the study in your book, Give and Take, where participants can either take $3 for themselves or give $2 to everyone else in a group. So if everyone chooses to give, everyone makes more money. It turned out in this study that the presence of one consistently generous person triggered over time the others in the group to also be generous, and everybody ends up benefiting. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's a great summary of now a pattern that's been documented a few times, which is exciting. It's almost like a game theory explanation for a pattern we see in the world that generosity can have this sort of ripple effect 
where it spreads across a culture or their pendulum swings, I think one sees over time in cultures of moving sort of towards greed and self-interest or towards generosity and taking care of each other. And right now I see acts of generosity around me and I'm hopeful that we're beginning to see a, a kind of cultural shift in this direction. I'm actually hopeful for the same reason. It's fair to say that most psychologists have believed for at least two decades that bad is stronger than good. That if you think about the weight of negative emotions and selfish behavior and unpleasant events, they do more harm than positive events and experiences and character traits seem to do good. And yet, one of the things we've learned in the last couple of years is sometimes good is stronger than bad. And I think that's one thing we're seeing in the pandemic right now, whether it's people going out of their way to sing in the streets, whether it is people going in debt to personally buy PPE to distribute to healthcare workers, and it tends to inspire you to do the same. And I think a lot of us are being uplifted right now by the, the virtuous acts of, of people around us. And I think that ought to bode well for the future of our country and the planet. Well, Adam, thank you so much for taking time off from your podcasting and book writing and family time and astronaut collecting <laughs> to be with us on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for doing it, Rufus. A pleasure as always. Remember, Adam's getting ready to announce the latest selections of the Next Big Idea Club. Join the club now for free to get those books and exclusive videos and audio of the authors giving you their key ideas in just minutes. Welcome to the future of learning. Come join our community at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast and get the first three months of membership absolutely free. Special thanks today to Adam Grant. You can find links to all his books and to his podcast, Work Life, all one word, at adamgrant.net. Next week, we'll be starting season two of the Next Big Idea podcast with a fascinating conversation with Daniel Levitin, a scientist and musician and author of the book Successful Aging, a neuroscientist explores the power and potential of our lives. You've been listening to The Next Big Idea. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Sound design is by Jake Gorski. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kobnott. Jonathan Miller is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.